This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado, The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to Front Office Features. I am Rob Crane, and today my guest is Ned Coletti. Ned uh, was a long time, should be in the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, uh, general manager uh, of the Dodgers, was with the, with the Giants, uh, and uh, is now uh, a voice of the, uh, of the Dodgers. And uh, I just, uh, and so welcome to Front Office Features, uh, Mr. Coletti. Rob, with that intro, you should be my agent. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm not sure that I uh, belong in the Hall of Fame, but I appreciate the, uh, the kind words there. Well, you're one of the uh, great baseball GMs uh, in, uh, in my time, and uh, I've always uh, admired what you've done, uh, really kind of with the Dodgers specifically. But I'd like to kind of go back and – Talk a little bit about how you even got started into baseball. You were in the PR department of the Cubs and then kind of transitioned to baseball operations. Not only did how did the transition work, but like how the hell did you even get the job with the Cubs? Well, it's, uh, it's a circuitous route, and it, I think it, it speaks to, um, to networking, uh, speaks to, um, I guess, diligence and a relentless approach. Um, I didn't, uh, I wasn't blessed with a, a high-end education. Uh, I was the first in my family to go to college. I'll give you a little bit of background here yeah. to kind of set the stage. Uh, I lived in a garage till I was five years old. My parents oh, wow. were, were great parents. Um, we had no financial capital whatsoever. So uh, the first 10 years of their marriage, uh, they lived in a garage, remodeled garage that my dad had put together. And I came along five years into their marriage. And they were, they were people in my whole family, uh, both sides were, were survivors of, of trying to figure it out and trying to figure life out and how to, how to pay a bill, um, how to have a house, how to put food on the table, to one of those typical stories. So it was more about survival than it was career. Uh, my parents wanted me to go to college. Um, I figured that out probably my February of my senior year of high school. I went to see my college counselor. And uh, he looked at me, no computers back then, looked through my, my transcripts and my grades and my classes and, uh, and told me that the best thing I could do was go to work across the street in a steel mill. Really? Uh, yeah, I lived in, in uh, Franklin Park outside of uh, Chicago near O'Hare Airport. Yeah. And um, all industrial, uh, all my buddies, dads and my dad included, uh, never wore a sport coat or a suit and tie to work. It was all laborers. And... Um, I knew if I came home and told my parents that I'd be breaking their heart because they had, they were set on me going to college, even though they didn't necessarily know that uh, this college would be good for this, this college would be good for that. And, and so let's set your career path as a high school student and start getting you in a good spot by the time you get into college and graduate college. So I ended up going to a junior college, same junior college as Kirby Puckett, Lance Johnson, Jeff Rubelet, Triton. Um, not too far from home, they had to let me in. I had huh. no grade. I had no grades. I had no money, and um, was really unprepared for for higher education. Uh, stayed there a couple of years. Went to Northern Illinois University, one of the schools that refused to take me 
as a high school senior. I had no four-year schools that would even let me enter. Um, so, bit of a bit of a struggle. Did you kind of use that as motivation, as no like kind of no. f you watch me? No doubt. I had to. Um, I've used every time I and. You know, this may help the listeners too. Every time somebody told me no, told me I wasn't good enough, I wasn't smart enough, um, I just, you know what? I use it as motivation. Okay, we'll see. We'll see if you're right. And um, so I went to Northern, graduated with a degree in journalism, and I wrote sports for four years. Uh, I was covering the National Hockey League in Philadelphia when a bunch of things in my life kind of collided, not necessarily in a good way. Uh, as soon as I went to Philly, my dad, who was 49 at the time, developed lung cancer. Oh. My mom, they were the love of each other's life, had never driven a car. They're in Chicago. I'm in Philly. My brother's a second collator to go to college. He's still in school. Uh, we decided to start a family. So in October, in September, my wife quits work. In October, our son is born. In December, I lose my job at the Philadelphia Journal. Newspapers closing all over the place. I have no income. We've lost her income because she became a mom and I wanted her to be able to, to be a mom and stay at home, even though we didn't have a, a lot of financial wherewithal, even at that point. And um, just had worked through it, just had to work through it. And I had made a contact with, with uh, the people at the Philadelphia Journal. Bob Ibach had been hired by Dallas Green as the PR director and the, the publications director. And he told me that, um, he said, look, I know you, and I just bought a, I just had bought a duplex too. And the interest rate, believe it or not, was like 18%. Oh my God. Oh yeah. So I had this duplex 18%. I had no income. My wife had quit working to become a mom, I became a dad. My dad, my dad was dying of lung cancer, 700 miles to the West. Uh, my mom was in a precarious spot because of that. All this stuff kind of collided at one time. So. I asked Bob if I could talk to Dallas Green for a couple minutes. And he said, yeah, you know, we'll let you interview for a job here. Uh, we have about 50 people in both, both categories that are looking for work. Um, you know, I'm doing this kind of out of friendship, much as anything. And then we did work together for a minute in Philly. So I said, okay, I need to talk to Dallas. He says, do me a favor. Don't talk about money. It's going to pay $13,000 a year, either job. And you can interview for one of them and we'll see if it works. I said, okay. He said, I'll hook you up with Dallas. So next day I talked to Dallas Green and Dallas was um, six foot five. Dallas Green was like, 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 you know, big character, big yeah. man, big character, big leader, led the Phillies to the 80 World Series. The first time the Phillies had ever won a World Series was their manager, then became the GM of the Cubs. Not too late, much later. I get Dallas on the phone. And I said, uh, hey, uh, thanks for uh, giving me a minute. I just need a minute of your time. And he goes, go ahead. Don't ask me about money. I said, well, let me just talk <laughs> to you for a minute. And uh, he says, all right, what's up? I said, I'd like you to consider something. I'd like you to consider um, giving me $1,000 to move back home and pay me $15,000 a year. And he stops me right there. And he says, I told you, do not ask me about money. I've got 50 people for both these jobs. You're lucky you're even going to get an interview. I said, I asked you for a minute. I still got 30 seconds left. <laughs> I, I said, I'd like you to consider a thousand to move me back home, $15,000 a year salary, and I will do both jobs. I'll interview for both, I will do both. And huh. it stopped him cold. And he says, you know what? Why don't you come in tomorrow, we'll talk. Oh, so that's, how your... base, that's how my baseball career began. I, came, I went in. I told him, look, I can do both these jobs. I can do the media relations piece. I can do the publications piece. I know how to write. I understand the media. You know, I've been a part of the media for a while. I, I get it. And if you don't like it after a couple months, then you can fire me. But I can pretty much guarantee you, you're going to like what I bring. Because I'm going to be the first guy in, the last one out. And I'm going to do everything I can possibly do to make the organization great. And I think he realized, okay, here's a guy, young guy, in a tough spot with his dad dying, with a, a, new, a new son in the family, all these other things that I had going on. And I think he appreciated that I also was thinking about the organization at the same time, because he was going to pay $26,000 for two people. And you got insurance and benefits and things, another 20% on top of that. 
So let's say it's rounded off. It's going to be a $30,000 adventure. Plus every year you're going to get that little 3% raise. So you got 6% worth of raises you're, you're paying to people three and three. And now here's somebody I can save on the headcount. I can save uh, a lot of different things financially. And I got a guy here willing to do this who came to me with this idea. And I think that paid a dividend. Not only did it start my baseball career, it'll be 40 years in January, but it also, um, it also planted a seed in, in, in his thought process, I think, that I was somebody who would take on as much as possible. So three years went by. 1984 Cubs went to the um, LCS back then. It was a three of best of five. Uh, only the LCS got you to the World Series. No wild card, no division championship series. It was win three games, go to a World Series. Um, we ended up winning the first two, getting swept by San Diego and, and going home. And that winter, we had some salary arbitration cases. So he comes to me on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving out of the blue, and he brings a lawyer with him named Frank Casey, who was actually one of the leaders of a law firm that Rob Manford and Frank Cooley were working at, Morgan oh. Bacchus Lewis or Lewis Bacchus in, in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And so he says, I want you to help Frank Casey out here with this arbitration case. And, and so I did. This was out of the blue? Yes. I was, it was like 6 o'clock on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I, was, I, I did what I said I was going to do. I was the first one in, the last one out. I live nowhere near Wrigley Field. I live 22 miles outside of, uh, away from Wrigley Field. And it was like every four blocks you had a stoplight type of ride. Yeah. And I was always first in, last out. And so he said, I want you to help. And so I did. We prevailed in the case. He came in and he said, uh, I want you to start doing this stuff. And a okay. year later, he started putting me in player development. A year later, started putting me in scouting. A year later, started to have me do contracts and the baseball rules, not, you know, 90 feet or 60 feet, yeah. six inches. But Compliance waivers, you were in, right? right. Uh, uh, you know, waivers, outrights, you know, all, all things like that. And so I started to, to build my base, the baseball side of my career. And it was obviously a big step. Not many people are, are blessed to have the opportunity to go from the business side to the baseball side. Uh, and I did that for... Um, uh, I was with the Cubs for 13 years. Probably the last decade of that was in baseball operations. Um, Dallas left. Jimmy Fry came in. He had been our manager. He became the GM. I worked with Jimmy. Um, he gave me even more responsibility. I, again, I'm not highly educated as, as so many people are today. But I was a worker. And I understood the game. And I understood what needed to be done. And I under, understood the the selflessness of an employee that could really help an organization and never one to, to toot my own horn or tell, you know, or, or tell anybody I should have this, I should do this, I should do that. I just always hope people noticed. And right. a lot of times people don't notice, but Jimmy noticed, Dallas noticed. Dallas absolutely noticed. And one of the things that we talk about on our podcast a lot are uh, there's two things in life you can control is effort and attitude. And it seems to me, that those were your guiding principles since the garage, if you will. You're right on. And I, you know, I teach at Pepperdine. I, I do Dodgers TV. I teach at Pepperdine. I scout for the NHL Sharks right now. Whenever I'm asked uh, in, a, in a coaching se session as I help people mentor and coach or in a teaching situation or whatever, I say just what you said. I said, understand what you can control. That you have to be 100% on. You have to, if, if there are six categories you can control, you got to maximize all those six. Most of life you cannot control and you'll waste your time trying to control it. But the things you do have control of, as you just said, your attitude, your effort, how you sacrifice, how you work with people, how you adjust to difficult situations, uh, all those things. Uh, I refuse to get beat on any of them. Now, doesn't mean I'm going to get every job, doesn't mean everything's going to work out. But everything that I had control over, I made sure I was going to do it to the utmost. And when you were with Chicago, if um, you, you developed one of the more early analytical programs, uh, and you kind of had an analytical view of the, one of the first analytical views of, uh, of the game. How did that come about? Jimmy Fry was um, our manager starting in 1984. And he had, he had been a hitting coach with the Mets most previously helped Daryl Strawberry get started. Um, 
1980, he managed against Dallas in the World Series. He managed Kansas City. And before that, he was a coach for Earl Weaver in Baltimore. And, you know, Earl Weaver, you can watch the videos, you know, kind of combative, uh, you know, short in stature, uh, tall in heart and, and, and success. And Earl Weaver was a proponent of statistical research. And uh, Charles Steinberg, who you know very well, probably right. did the same thing in, in some ways that, that I was doing. Jimmy came to me and said, I need as much information as you can give me that you can put on an index card that I can keep in my pocket during a game, hitter pitcher matchups, early, late, being able to hit, um, lefty matchups, righty matchups. He says anything statistically, and this is way before computers, Rob. Yeah, this, right. is, this is, I mean, you had a computer for word processing, but you didn't have companies that were doing this. And so we did it, we did it that way. And so Tribune Company owned the Cubs. And, um, and at the end of every year, you'd have a big meeting with the Tribune Company and they said, do you need anything? I said, yeah, I need a computer programmer. I need somebody who can write some language here to develop this program. So we developed this massive program in-house uh, to really chart pitching and really help our hitters against other pitchers, but really develop our own pitchers, guys like Greg Maddox, who was a, a young kid at the time, uh, Rick Sutcliffe, who was a veteran at the time and had won the Cy Young in 84 after we acquired him. And so over the course of a winter, I had access to a computer program at Tribune Company who built this program. And so we were, we were using computer stuff back in probably 1986, 87. And no one was doing that. Archaic, but you know, compared to today, but cutting edge back then. They, uh, Charles Steinberg tells Dr. Charles, president of the Paw Sox slash Woo Sox. He says he writes with a Bic, the Bic uh, blue uh, pen because of Earl Weaver. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, you know, as you um, as you've grown and you know you go going to the Giants and then obviously uh, your long time with the Dodgers, one of the team and you know you're being one of the most successful general managers uh, at least of my time, um, and you can't do that without a great team around you. Uh, what were some of the guiding principles? What were some of the characteristics uh, that you were looking for uh, when you would bring somebody on to your team? Uh, integrity, trust, um, whether it's a player or a staff member, you have to be able to trust the person. Uh, you, can't, um, you can't wonder. You can't not know. Uh, that goes with um, their integrity. It also goes with their knowledge of what they're doing. Um, I was a big proponent of um, diversity. Uh, in my staffs uh, had had I been uh, had somebody not taken a chance on me based on my personal analytics let's say of where I grew up where I went to school I'd have no chance so I understood people needed opportunity so I would look for the people that that kind of had the characteristics that that I needed to have of look they, I'm going to be relentless with what I do I'm going to be honorable you're never going to have to worry about what I'm doing where I'm going uh, whose side I'm on uh, you're going to know completely that I'm with you and I'll take on every responsibility I can, even if it's not glamorous, even if it's not like the best job in the organization, give me a chance. And, and I look for people who could do that. I've hired people that have had tremendous educational backgrounds. I've hired people who are, some people have never, you know, never went to college and it didn't necessarily matter to me if their work ethic and their, their passion for what they wanted to do was there. And I think, um, you know, I've given chances to a lot of people because somebody gave me a chance. And I, and I look for those, those traits. The, the human traits of people to me are, are invaluable. And I think people do need a chance. And if people have, have grown up in a situation sort of like I did where, where things were difficult and things were challenging, when somebody does recognize you and give you that chance, boy, it fuels you. It really empowers you to do even more. You know, they, they give you the old cliche about he'd run through a wall for you, you know, yeah. and it's kind of that because somebody actually believes in you after you, you, you struggled and you, and you started behind in every race because of, of uh, your education or your, your, your family or, or different things that you had to challenge. They, um, so 
go into that a, a little bit with, you know, there's basically thousands of college age kids that were just trying to, they say they would die to get into player development. Uh, you know, no matter if it's baseball or football or hockey or basketball, it doesn't really matter. Um, a lot of people say that, but what is the difference from the people who say, I want to do that. And from the people who actually get into the business, what separates the people who want to, to the actual people who do? Well, I think yet, I think it's imperative to know people. I'm not, and I know, you know, not networking, although networking helps, helps certainly just told you a story about it, but to really understand how people think. And people years ago would ask me, so my daughter, my son wants to get into professional sports. What, what school should they go to? What classes should they take? And I'd give them the easy answer, you know, go to UMass, go to uh, Ohio University, had maybe the first sports management programs in the country but prominent ones if they weren't the first. And that's the easy answer. But the, the answer I would give today is understand people. Take psychology classes. If you love sports, you're going to be immersed in it to begin with. Take psychology classes? Take psychology. Learn how people think. Learn why people do what people do. Okay? Learn how some people can be motivated. Learn how some people can be, their hunger can be taken away from them due to financial uh, you know, you get a hundred million dollar contract. How many people continue to play hard for a hundred million when you signed them and you gave them a thousand dollars, you know, uh, understand how people think. I would take psychology, a couple classes, uh, not a major in psychology, but take some psychology. Also take some sociology. The world's getting smaller. Understand how cultures work. Understand how, how people from different parts of the globe see life. I think it's, I think it's almost, to make a selection on whether it's a staff member, a player, you, in my opinion, you have to know so much about what, who they are, what motivates them, how they think, uh, what, what, where their weaknesses are, where their strengths are, um, how they're going to go about their job and, and how they're going to go about their career. And if it's a priority or if it's a hobby. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a ton of people that want to work in, the, in sports. There's no doubt. But for me, the the uniqueness of the individual what makes them different how do they think will they be will they learn to be comfortable with the uncomfortable i don't want to do that job that's the worst job in the organization i'm going to wait for a better one i'm not taking that gig guess what you might be waiting a long time for the perfect job in the perfect city at the perfect rate of pay because you think you went to the perfect university you know it doesn't go like that in my opinion and so you know, those that are relentless with what they do and, and honorable, as I said a few minutes ago, yeah. I'll take those people all the time. And those that have stepped out of their comfort zone, those who have challenged themselves to do something different. Uh, I'll give you a quick, quick example. I spoke in Montreal for three straight winters at Concordia University. I met a young student whose parents were from India and Nigeria. And he went to Edmonton, Alberta as a young kid. Okay. And you know, kind of struggle to get adapted, this and that, ends up going to Montreal to, to go to school there. As you, as you know, I'm sure Montreal, a French-speaking city, a uh, little bit English, but really more French than English. And uh, I meet him and he says, uh, I said, what do, you, you know, what do you want to do with your career? I want to be in journalism. Uh, I want to write. I want to write sports. I want to write politics. I want to really understand that. I said, what are you going to do next summer? He says, I'm going to go to Paris. I said, really? I says, you speak French? He goes, very little. I says, anybody, any of your buddies going? Any friends that live there? He says, I know nobody. He goes to Paris and he spends a summer there, gets immersed in the language, comes back fluent in French, gets an apartment by himself, gets lost a few times, stands on train platforms at midnight, lost, you know, in tears sometimes, <laughs> going, what am I doing here? How am I doing this? But he sticks with it. The next year he ends up with an NHL team in the States and he's got to pay to do this internship. And now he's living in a room with four people he doesn't know, just trying to make ends meet. That, that young person there did so much work that nobody else would necessarily do. How many people would do what he did in both summers? I'd hire that guy in a minute because he showed me, hey, look, I want this so bad, I want to learn, and I'm, I'm going to be relentless with what I do. And he's different. He's different than everybody else that I've met. He's just he stays with it. And he, that's about four years ago. He's doing great now. He's got a, a tremendous career. 
Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, and you can pause your account anytime, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire, with 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month. Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidate more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with our free $75 credit at indeed.com slash blue wire. This is the best offer available anywhere. Go right now to indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. That's awesome. I think one of the things that you said too is for a lot of young people coming up and uh, is you said that it was that it's not a hobby, right? This is your professional or it's a hobby, right? A lot of people like sports uh, going into college, right? Because we all like going to games and we all like following the players and we all like doing this, but it's more of a hobby. And I think people, when they're ready to make it as a profession, as a career, as a passion, uh, that's a big separator uh, of young folks. Do you agree? No doubt. You know, I, I think... And, and this is, this is a general, a generality. And, uh, and so some of it fits, some of it doesn't fit. I think, I think that a lot of people that are in the twenties and maybe early thirties, there may be a touch of entitlement and expectation attached to it. And I don't think it comes that way. I think you have to be so strong and so good. And there's an old saying, patience is a virtue. That's because it is. And <laughs> people, people need to, to spend their time. And people need to maximize their day. And people need to compete. They may not be competing on an athletic field. Amen. See the ice, but they need to compete in their, in their surroundings. And, I, and not to be backstabbing and stuff like that. But they need to be the best. You mean honorable and uh, competitive as hell. Because no matter if you are uh, – you know, a PR person, you don't think competition when you think public relations, at least I don't. Um, But there's a whole bunch of people who want to be the PR person for the Chicago Cubs or the LA Dodgers or the Worcester Red Sox, right? These are, these positions are competitive and you've got to set yourself up to be number one when they, when they make the phone call. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that, that takes, that takes a special type of person uh, to compete at that level. And I think that's where a lot of people fall out or a lot of people do not achieve uh, what their, their goal is a graduate, you know, college student, graduating student, young executive. Um, they, they lose interest or they decide that there's too many people in line ahead of them. But that's, that's the only way I think you make it, unless you're connected, unless you got a, you know, a friend or a family member that runs something that's going to just open the door. If you go into it without a door opener, without a sponsor, it's just you and your, your education and your willpower and your persistence and your, your loyalty and integrity. That's how, that's the only way in I know is to really get after it and, and be honorable with it and be, don't be a backstabber, but really, really show your, show yourself to your boss that your boss say, Hey, we cannot lose this person. We cannot lose this person. And I think too, back, going back to your story about uh, the Cubs, uh, you're, you had a different value proposition than anybody else's. Someone was trying to be the media person and someone was trying to be the publications person, but you came in with a different attitude. It says, I can be both and I want to work my ass off. So you pr- brought value, not only for you when you were trying to do something, but also for the team is like, I can do both jobs uh, for half the money. And 
this is better for the team. So you had that team in mind as well. Sometimes I feel like people are coming in with them in mind and not the value that they bring to the team. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And when you think about organizations, what are organizations there for? They're really there to make money. Right. Or, and so how are you going to help a team make money? And you can help a team make money by helping a team save money. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't necessarily make the Cubs money, but I could save the Cubs money. <laughs> yeah. A dollar then, saved is, a, is, a, is yeah, basically a dollar thing. earned. Right. Yeah. So I'm interested. You said, uh, and I was, you know, kind of doing my research. You're a hockey scout with the, uh, with the, with the sharks. How did that come about? And like, what similarities are there between hockey players and baseball players, uh, though it's two totally different skill sets. The wait is finally over. Football is back, baby. Steelers are 2-0. Uh, love it. Uh, you might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Uh, head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That is BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Well, I'm a student of the game. Uh, I've followed hockey as long as i followed baseball since I was a, a young kid. And as my career started to grow, um, you start to find yourself in settings with other leaders of other teams and other sports. And I would spend, I spent almost every day of the year working as an assistant GM or GM for 25 years, but in the dead of winter, I would take a week. And I could still get my work done to be a cell phone or computer for the baseball gig, but I would spend time with different, different GMs, different coaches, different scouts of NHL teams. Worked up a network of probably eight to 10 different teams where I knew four or five people at each organization and you spend the time, but you just don't spend time on your watch. You spend really quality time where you sit and you talk because a lot of the challenges that a GM has in another sport you have in baseball. A lot of the successes you have with managing people, it's the same thing. There's a lot of cross section because people are people going back to the psychology piece of this. People are people. And so I spent a lot of time with different, different NHL folks. And when I left the GM gig a few years ago, um, I got calls. You know, my buddies checked in to see, uh, you know, what I was going to do next, different things like that. And a few of them asked if I would ever come and help them, uh, whether it be in scouting, whether it be in player development, whether it be in just uh, another ear for, the, for them to run something by, since you, you understand how it works, you know, GMs are a little bit of a unique breed. A GM can talk to another GM far easier than a GM can talk to somebody from another organization who's not a GM because you don't understand all the pratfalls you got, all the trap doors that come up and all the different challenges there are. And um, about four years ago now, Doug Wilson, who's a, the GM of the, of the San Jose Sharks and somebody who I've known through uh, baseball and different things and, and his love for sports and mine, um, asked me if I had any interest in, uh, in changing sports. And I said, you know what, I, I, I've thought about it and I think I would. And he says, let's, let's keep thinking about this. So a year went by or so, and um, he said, hey, can you come up to San Francisco or come up to San Jose actually for a, for a day? I want to talk to you. And I knew most of his front office from, from, being, from working there. Uh, in San Fran with the Giants and going down to San Jose for games and sitting with people and staying up till two or three or four in the morning, having a glass of wine, but also <laughs> talking about the game, talking yeah, about right. what, what we had just seen, getting up early in the next morning, going to practice, understanding how different things work. And so he said, um, we'd love to have you come and scout for us. 
and 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 give me some some guidance from time to time when I need it on personnel moves or on different things that come up in the course of it. You've done it for a long time, and I said I'd be honored to do it. He says, "Well, let's try it, and um, let's see how it goes." And we have to promise our friendship will never get involved in it. This is a, a business deal, but you know we both have great respect for each other. Let's give it a whirl. So um, I did it the first year quietly. Um, did a lot of it on video and, and turned in reports and continued to, to kind of grow my, my knowledge base. You know, something that everybody listening should think about too is be curious. You got to be curious in my opinion. You got to ask questions. A lot of people yeah. don't want to ask questions. A lot of people don't want to have communication. Rather sit on their phone and just send a text message. You need communication in my opinion, including a curiosity. And that's what I have with San Jose and, and the NHL. And so uh, a year ago, I was teaching in, uh, in London for Pepperdine, took a, a month away from baseball and, and taught abroad for them. And, um, and they called and they said, hey, look, we want to we wanna make this bigger than a year ago. Would you do it? I said, I'd be honored to do it. And so that's what I do. I've got three full-time jobs now. They huh. all understand. They all understand that, you know, every, everything I do, I, I do to the utmost as, as best I can. And I, I manage my time. Just a couple, just the last few days, I've had Dodger games to do on TV and radio post game, and I've I've taught school, and I've also had NHL playoff scouting to do, and and uh, and conference calls. So, you know, I maximize my days, but it's really a networking thing and showing an interest and a curiosity, and being somebody people can trust. I'm telling you, trust is the most important aspect of it if you really want to move up in an organization and and uh, move up in life. You can't trust somebody. It's, uh, it's tough to give them the power to do anything next year. Amen. And trust takes uh, a, life, a lifetime uh, to accumulate, but an instant to get rid of. Yes, it does. You gotta be, it's precarious. You got you to gotta be real. If, you, yeah. if you're not real, your time will tell, as you say. So I'm interested more in the thought process of a general manager than uh, than the actual, you know, uh, I guess players or logistics of it, uh, but the thought process of it, right? You've organized more than two billion, negotiated more than two billion dollars worth of contracts over your career, and you or- orchestrated blockbuster deals. You know, I'm a, uh, I work for the Red Sox uh, organization, and I, you know, I remember the Adrian Gonzalez, Josh Beckett, Carl, Carl Crawford deal. Um, from a long time ago. Not Manny go- Ramirez before that. Anna Ramirez before that, uh, the whole thing, right? So I guess take out the player side of it. I'm more interested, like, take me into the boardroom. Like, how does something like this start? Like, who picks up the phone? Does the ownership do this? How, like, take me through the uh, building of a deal. And it could be, you know, fake players. But I'm more interested on, like, the concept of how this actually takes shape. Well, it's... Rob, it's, it's almost always different depending on the situation. And I'll, I'll go back on, on the two deals we you just mentioned there because they're, they're both different in nature. Um, just in general, general managers check in with each other all the time. Some, some people have friendships. Some people are just business associates. And so they're, they're always checking in. And I think in any negotiation, um, your research, your preparation are, are really huge. Uh, you know, I, I, I teach this in, in, a, in a webinars that I've, I've started through LinkedIn. Uh, the ability to listen is really big. And yeah. most people would rather talk than listen. Uh, I've never learned anything by talking. I've learned almost everything by seeing and listening. God gave but, you two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? That's right. And, and uh, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a key to it. And it's also a, the, the, the courage to say no if you're on the buying end of it. But in the, in the Manny Ramirez deal, um, Theo had called me about Andy LaRoche uh, maybe early July uh, with a July 31st trading deadline. And, and he was offering me a pitcher that I thought was more of a 4A pitcher, somebody that could pitch in the big leagues a little bit, but wasn't going to be able to have sustained success up there. Uh, and so I, I really didn't want to do that. I, I told Theo so. So a couple more phone calls. And then it's the eve of the trading deadline. And I'm working on one deal with uh, the late Kevin Towers, dear friend, um, to try and get Greg Maddox 
for the second time, I got Greg in 06 and then was uh, trying to get Greg a second time in 08 to help uh, help our, our team get to the postseason and also to help and, and help educate a, uh, a protege, a guy named Clayton Kershaw. You know, and I, I heard I, of him. <laughs> I always felt it was it was good to have veterans. I've known Greg since Greg was 18, so I knew he'd be a great fit, even though it was the last year of his career. And um, the eve of the trading deadline, uh, Theo calls me, and uh, in my office I've got the TV on and the bottom line is scrolling, saying that Manny Ramirez is about to be traded to Florida. Florida is going to send prospects to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is going to send Jason Bay to the Red Sox and the Red Sox are going to send prospects to Pittsburgh. So Pittsburgh's getting prospects for Jason Bay. Manny's going to Florida. Jason Bay is going to Boston. And so I'm talking to Theo. I say, Hey, I see that uh, you're moving Manny. And he says, yeah, I don't know. You know, and I, again, listening and I've known Theo for a while. I think he's a hall of fame general manager. Um, I could just sense in his voice that this deal was probably not, going to happen, that there was something that was a quirk in the system, even though it wasn't my deal. And after the game, I went down to, to talk to the manager to bring him up to date on some of the, the deals I had mine, including the Maddox deal, manager's Joe Torrey. And I said, hey, let me ask you something. I said, you manage against Manny Ramirez, you coach him in all-star games. You know, a little, uh, can be a little bit difficult from time to time. But at that point in time, it was very difficult to, for the Red Sox to handle. I said, uh, what do you think? And he goes, my goodness, you get Manny Ramirez? I said, no, I don't know if I can get Manny Ramirez or not. I haven't even talked to Theo about him. I just sense he's trying to move him, and, and there may be an opportunity to get him. And um, he says, I take him in a heartbeat. We'll figure it out. We'll figure out the personality. So I went back, uh, you know, you're on the, it's almost like final exams week. You know, you're, you're up till about two or three in the morning, and you you take a nap or go clean up and then go start again until you got the one o'clock deadline Pacific. And uh, about five in the morning, I got a note from Theo. Hey, give me a shout. And I called him and he says, you have interest in Manny Ramirez. And I said, uh, you know, I, I do, but I have to tell you, we don't have any financial back. We have no financial wherewithal. I had a deal for CC Sabathia about 10 days earlier, CC Sabathia, Casey Blake and Jamie Carroll. And uh, I couldn't do it, and, and largely because of finances. Yeah. So I told Theo, I said, you know, Manny's owed more than $7 million this year. Um, I can't pick up any money. And he goes, you can't pick up any money? I said, Theo, we, we only have a few hours left here before the deadline. This isn't a fishing expedition. Where <laughs> I, I, can, I can be candid with you. You know, I have no money. And so I said, so if that's something you want to pursue, let me know. Talk to talk to Larry. Talk to John Henry. Talk to your leadership, and and let me know. And um, and he did. And uh, they call. He calls me back, and he says, you know, I, I think we can we can figure this out. I said, well, let's get our ownerships on the phone too, because I wanted to make sure that Frank McCord, who was our owner, could hear it from his peers, what the the finances of it were going to be. I could take care of the talent side. I needed, I needed everybody to be on board with the financial side. So at the end of the day, we make the deal. We make the deal at the deadline, right, right as one o'clock is, is about to strike. There's a, a four-way call with Neil Huntington of the Pirates, Theo, uh, and his group with the Red Sox, Frank and myself in, in L.A., and, and uh, I think Rob Manford, who was second in command of Commissioner Selig at the time, because we were, you had to have the commissioner's office blessing because you had so much money involved. And, yeah. and they were going to send us seven plus million dollars to do it. So that's how that one came about. It came about really in the course of less than 24 hours. Wow. Adrian Gonzalez one was a much longer courtship and, and a lot of different factors. And ownership was greatly involved in that because of the amount of money that the Dodgers took on contractually. But it's important to, to really understand the context of where everybody was at the time. I talked to Ben uh, probably in late April as, as our new ownership was taking, taking hold May 1st. And they had told me, Stan Caston had told me, Hey, think big, think about guys that uh, you, you've liked in the past that you were never able to get because you couldn't afford to do it. Um, you know, we're not going to be, we're not going to be locked in financially here where we need to, we need to show people we're serious and we're new owners and 
the, the previous ownership had gone through a tough time. The Dodger brand had started to suffer a little bit. There was also a massive TV contract to be negotiated at the end of that season. Yeah. So I talked to Ben about, about Adrian. Uh, he actually, I think, may have called me on Beckett, and I, and I switched it to Adrian. He said, I, I, can't, I can't do that. It's too early in the season. You know, we still think we can compete if I do that. It's going to look like we're, we're giving up. So we would check in periodically and bring up the same names. And uh, training deadline, again, he tried to, to get me to take Josh. Uh, I wasn't interested at, at that point in time. And then August hit, and there was a uh, owner's meeting, I think maybe in Minneapolis. And uh, ownership went in and, and met with Red Sox ownership, and they talked about the money. And they came back, and they said, we're not worried about picking up the money. We, we know we can handle this. If you can get Adrian Gonzalez and, uh, and Carl and Josh, and we had lost Jerry Harrison, so we also needed Nick Punta, um, don't let the money stand in the way. And so, you know, I was, I was stubbed because of how I grew up. I was, even though you're talking about millions of dollars and I've negotiated all those deals for years, a bunch of guys that are now retired Hall of Famers all the way up to guys that are playing today, uh, it still was tough for me to, to part with a lot of money. And so I argued a little bit with our own ownership and said, look, we can probably do a deal for far less and have them kick in more. And they said, let's just get this thing done. So really? we made that deal. Uh, I think August 25th took on a lot of salary and um, ended up uh, having our team make a run because the team that we started with that year was, was a little bit cobbled together because we were going through ownership change. Uh, I had gotten a lot of players that I knew would play hard and, and fight hard. Uh, they weren't the most talented group, but they had the heart of a of a warrior. And they Johnny Gomes was on that team, right? Uh, not our team. No. Oh no. no. Right. And um, you know, we just we pressed forward and made that deal and a few other deals, and uh, came within a game of making the postseason that year. But um, it also gave credibility to new ownership. And while they took on a, a few million dollars, they ended up signing a eight point three five billion dollar TV deal a couple months after that deal. So a lot of different things lead into the thought process for a GM, but every deal has got its own fingerprint. It's, it's so interesting. You did a great job of taking us kind of behind the, the scenes of, um, of what it takes to put a deal together. And that kind of leads me into my, uh, into my last question is, you know, you just kind of took us behind the scenes, if you will, and you are now offering virtual courses that are kind of taking people on the skills that you've created that they will need to succeed in their business. Can, I, can you take us through the, your yeah, virtual yeah, courses and such? Yes, thanks, Rob. I, I just started this about a week ago. Um, I get asked all the time to do podcasts and to, to talk and to mentor and to teach, including the Pepperdine University responsibilities. And I thought, you know what, there's so much interest in this, I'll make it available and I'll try to uh, help people. Um, and so how do you get a job? How do you get a job in professional sports? I can't get anybody a job, but I can help people think about it. I can help make people think about how they can be different and how they can, can perhaps get their foot in the door. So that's one of the webinars. Another one is on negotiation. We negotiate every day, all of us, not just agents, not just GMs. Everybody negotiates every day. So some, some of the fundamentals of that, how to negotiate better, stronger, how to put yourself in a good spot. Um, also a, a negotiation uh, practice where we'll actually, everybody who does sign up for it will be a GM. They will have their own team and they will have their own budget and they will have players they need to move and player types they need to acquire. And everybody in the situation will have that, you know, they'll have the piece, they'll all be there. That's awesome. That's one of all the coolest things I've ever heard. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if you're a fantasy sports person, you know, it, it may uh, sharpen your talents in that area. If you if your leagues allow trading, also going to do one on, on media relations, another one on culture building, another one on player development and scouting. What do you look for as a scout? Um, what, what are some of the traits of, of people and players, whether you're hiring a front office person or whether you're hiring uh, an athlete? What, what are some of the traits? So uh, that's what I'm going to do. There's, there's six of them out there. Uh, there's a little bit of a charge for it, and a, a, a strong percentage is going to go to uh, 
help some of the people out who've been really hit hard by the coronavirus. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, something in LA for um, the homeless. Uh, LA's homeless situation here continues to get ramped up. I talked to somebody yesterday who's deeply involved in it. There may be 75,000 people living in the streets of LA. So um, a lot of it will go there. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help people who I don't know who are going to, by, by virtue of taking this thing and getting involved in it, are going to help people they don't know. And so it, it kind of is a helpful thing, hopefully, for many. But um, it'll, it'll be small. It won't be massive classes. It'll all be on Zoom. It'll be a kind of an intimate setting where people can ask questions, where people can have discussion. I don't, I'm not, uh, not trying to have 50 people, 100 people at these things, 15, 10, 5, whatever. Because the communication again is 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 part of it, and uh, it's trying to help out and see if people can you know, have an interest in, in learning. I love this, man. This was uh, the what you're building, and you know you've been very philanthropic. Uh, you know you've been on a number of uh, of boards, and uh, you know you're just a class act of class acts. And I'm so thankful that uh, you and I were able to connect and have this conversation. This was a ton of fun for me. Uh, and I know our listeners will enjoy it a lot. And I'm so thankful that, uh, you know, we, we are now connected. And uh, this was, this yep. was awesome, Ned. Thank you so very much. So I got one last question for you. One yep. last, one last one, I promise. Um, you've worked with, and I'm uh, currently working with Janet Marie Smith. Uh, yes. she's it's the best, right? I, I posted this the other day. If there is a hall of fame for sports architects, she is the first inductee. Amen. She is, she is brilliant, brilliant, humble, classy, respectful. She is, you know, the great work at Fenway park has done great work at Dodger stadium, Camden yards, you know, all these, all these magnificent cathedrals of baseball. And one of the best, the absolute best at what she does, one of the best people I know. And uh, uh, design in uh, Polar Park, it's been an honor to, to yeah. work with her on, uh, uh, very frequently. So uh, I, had to, I, had to, I, had to, uh, I had to bring her up. She was one of the, she's been a guest uh, uh, really? here on Front yeah. Office she's, Features. Yeah, she's, she's, really she was great. So, uh, Ned, I can't thank you enough. Uh, this was great. Let's stay in touch and uh, best luck. And if we can help in any way promoting, um, you know, what you're doing with the courses, we'd love to and, uh, and be good partners in any way that we can. Thanks for doing what you do, Rob. It's a, you're doing great work for a lot of people that are trying to, trying to be the next Rob, you know, <laughs> they should, they should try to be the next Ned. Well, be whatever, you know, but they're, you know, it's, it's great what you do. And, and thank you for your, your kind words today. Uh, you know, I've, I've had a, bl- a life that is well blessed beyond any measure and far more blessings than I could have ever, ever hoped for or dreamt of. And uh, just trying to pay it back and pay it forward. You're the best, Ned. I really do appreciate it. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Rob. You're well. You too.